Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett. Today we're going to be talking about small business deal analysis tools and what you want to be looking for when you start using one or when you build one of your own. I'm David C. Barnett and you're tuned in to Small Business and Deal Making, the podcast, YouTube channel and blog where I talk about buying, selling, financing and managing small and medium sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things. I talk to interesting people and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like and be sure to hit subscribe and let's get to it. Are you thinking of growing your business or beginning a journey into entrepreneurship? Take a shortcut to success by buying an existing and profitable business the right way. Visit businessbuyeradvantage.com and learn more about my online training, group coaching, and consulting services designed to help you win. Great. So the what inspired today's video is that I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one just consulting calls with people. They'll go on to um, on, on to calldavidbarnett.com, which is a, a shortcut to the blog site where I've got these booking links listed out and people will say, I'm working on this deal. I, I'd just like to go over everything with you and uh, see if I'm missing something or see if I'm on the right track or if there's an obvious red flag that, that I haven't spotted. And so I get to see a lot of people's tools that they're using. So people will develop spreadsheets or they'll find a spreadsheet maybe that was shared online and they'll, they'll take that and they'll adapt it for their own purpose. Uh, and they'll be working on it and then they'll share it with me. And so I've, I've had an opportunity to see a lot of these different sort of analysis tools and templates that people put together. And so I wanted to make a little video today to talk about some of the common things that I see um, that, that people don't do or, or their, their tools fail to account for. Um, and uh, I'm going to share with you the tool that I've got within my Business Buyer Advantage program. And, and the reasons why, uh, when I built it, I chose to lay it out in a certain way. So, so let me share my screen. So this is the main page and I'll make this a little bit bigger. And if you're listening to the audio, you might want to watch the YouTube video of this one, uh, because I will be sharing a lot of screenshots today. Um, I'll try to make this as big as I can. There you go. So, so this is the intro page. And every time I have a new release, I always put comments here for everyone about what has changed. But the, the very first thing in, in my analysis template is a place to do the SDE calculation or the normalization. So what, what is my preferred methodology? Well, I'm gonna zoom in on this even more. And my preferred methodology is to basically recreate the income statement or, or the PL in my spreadsheet as it appears in my source document. So in my template along the top here, you can see this is 2019 and then it says tax return. I like to indicate what the source document is because as you're analyzing a business, you're going to see in this one over here in 2022, we have internal statement from the bookkeeper. I want to know if there's a consistency in the source of the information at a glance. And if you're working on one of these deals, you could set it up initially with information from certain source documents and then other documents become available through your discussion with the seller. 
And so in this example, the 2022 tax return might become available. And then you might want to go in and edit or update this. But you might forget to do that if you haven't noted it clearly where the information is coming from. Now, I like to use the methodology of listing everything down in a, you know, a source column. So in this case, under the 2019 um, number here, you can see uh, this is an example from an auto repair company. So you can see here uh, mechanical 613, 199,000 interest and subsidies two, and then other is 1203. Okay. And you can see in, in each of these categories, we've got um, all of the input from the different tax returns. And then I've got a cost of goods sold section. And so I've, I've inputted these numbers. Um, and down here, we have the expenses or the overheads. And then what I do is in the column beside, um, I make my adjustments. In my spreadsheet, I like to have a space for notes. So you can hear, see here, I put remove both owners' actual wages. So this would be W-2 or, or T-4 wages, uh, depending on which country you're in. And so we can see here that there's also a, a row called amortization of equipment. Now, typically when you're doing an SDE calculation, uh, amortization and depreciation are added back. So how, you, how would we do this? Well, in this cell, I would put 1785, oh, sorry, 17. 85. And then you can see here in my normalized column, it's gone to zero. So it shows me what the work is that I'm doing to get from my initial data presentation to my normalized cash flow of the business. And so this is important because what I've seen some people do is they'll just use the SDE number from a broker's SIM or they'll take a PL or income statement and they'll work down with a pencil and they'll add things back and stuff, and they'll come up with an SDE number. And then they'll use that SDE number as they move through their analysis and calculation. Um, and I think that there's a danger in that because as you talk with sellers and brokers and you uncover further information, um, you may wanna be making adjustments to the normalization. And if you can't quickly see what work you've done, uh, it can become very easy to skip or forget an adjustment that you later decide is important. So, and so as we go down here, you know, that amortization of equipment, I'm going to have to add that back in every column, 1353, and we have 8311 here, okay? And then down here in the overheads, you can see there's, you know, advertising, memberships, courtesy vehicle expenses, depreciation of a car, it's already been added back. We have rent. So the actual rent in 2019 was 33,480. And in discussing with the seller, they've already said to this buyer that any new person uh, is gonna be able to get a new lease with the landlord, but that the rent would be going up. So what I do is I do a negative adjustment here, which actually increases the rent level because I wanna know what the normalized performance of the business would have been over the last few years if they had been um, you know, operating under the conditions that the new owner would. So that would indicate a higher rent. So we put this in as a negative feature uh, figure to increase the rent amount. And then in this particular example, there were two owners. And so we, we removed their actual wages, which reduced the cost of goods sold. But then we have to account for those people. So how do we do that? Well, 
there's an expense here called front end person, because in this business, there was one owner who was kind of up front talking with customers. And there was another owner who was in the back doing some mechanical work, but otherwise managing the auto repair guys. And so what we've done in here is we've uh, done some work. We've gone on glassdoor.com or salary.com, one of those. And we found that in this area, that type of work is worth about 37.4. So we put in this negative figure of 37.4 and that replaces the cost of that second partner. Um, the whole goal here is to get down to a seller's discretionary earnings. And the definition of seller's discretionary earnings is the amount of money available to one owner operator that works full time. So this is a, a common error in a lot of broker sims that I see is if there are two owners, they'll add back all of the owner's wages. Now, in order to help my students, what I do in here is I actually have a normalization checklist. So it's it's got a list of all the most common normalizations and then commentary here about what people should be doing so that people can do this as accurately as possible. Now, the other way that I sometimes see this done is instead of putting the, the normalized adjustment right beside the source figure and then and then seeing the adjusted amount, what a lot of brokers will do is they'll have a, a an income statement and then at the bottom, they'll list out the addbacks. They'll say, you know, the owner is also doing this, this, and this, and, then, and they'll list out the addbacks and then they'll just do the math, uh, the net income, and then they'll say, plus these addbacks gives you this as an SDE. And I'll tell you the reason that I don't like that. Oftentimes, there's a misunderstanding between the business owner, the broker that they're dealing with, and the bookkeeper or accountant who actually does the books. And so let me um, explain one common problem. So a broker will ask a business owner, what personal expenses of yours does the business pay? And the business owner might say, well, uh, I have a car lease and the business pays the car lease. So what happened was the business owner leased a car. And when the auto dealer said, you know, what bank account do you want us to pull the lease payment out of? He provided the details of the business bank account. So from the owner's perspective, he thinks that the business is paying his car lease. Okay. And when the broker asks, what personal perks do you have that are being paid by the business? The seller might say, well, there's this car lease. It's 500 a month, let's say it's $6,000 a year. And so what the broker will then do, if, if the um, ad backs are being put at the bottom underneath, he'll put $6,000 a year as a, a car lease for the owner's benefit. And they'll put that as an ad back. But what neither of them re realize is that when the bookkeeper is working on the books of the business, the bookkeeper has identified that this is the owner's car lease coming out of the business bank account. And so what does the bookkeeper do? Well, maybe they reconcile that to a, a due to shareholder account, like a shareholder loan account, or maybe they just recognize it as a, a perk and they sort that through to the owner's W2 or T4 if there is one or something like that. So the bookkeeper is already recognizing that this is a personal thing that is not a business expense. And so that $6,000 a year is not actually showing up as a line item for a business expense. It's, it's being funneled out either as part of the profit or part of the owner's compensation already. And so what happens is if, you, if it's already part of the profit and then you add it back, you end up double counting those dollars. So let's flip back over to the, to the presentation here because 
let's take, um, you know, there's no, so courtesy vehicle. So let's say instead of courtesy vehicle, this was actually, you know, vehicle expenses. Well, if there was a claim that there was a $6,000 lease payment coming out of this, it does not make sense that $6,000 of a $2,388 annual expense is for the owner's benefit. It leaves us with a negative normalized number. It's not logical. And so the reason why I like this format is because as you're going through the addbacks or normalizations and you put them in, you get to test each one. And so in this case, if I was told that the owner's personal car was being paid for by the business, and I see obviously that it's not going to be able to come out of this, you know, courtesy vehicle or, um, or auto expense line, then I can push back and say, well, I don't see how that fits. You know, how do you have a $6,000 personal expense within a $2,300 expense line? That doesn't make sense to me. Can you clarify that? And just the, the question will then cause the owner of the business to maybe go and talk with the bookkeeper and say, hey, how do you account for this? Then it will be realized that it isn't really a legitimate ad back because it's already being recognized in the owner's salary or in the profit of the business. So that's why I prefer this format. And then in my template, um, what I do is I have an opportunity here for people to do weighted averages. So you can see we've got the numbers pulled from the, the normalized columns above, sales, cost of goods sold, gross profit, expenses, SDE, and EBITDA. Oh, and, and here's where the owner fair market value of an owner manager goes in. So at the bottom here, we've got the SDE, in this case of 2021, it's 236,000. And then the fair market value of the owner or manager is right here. And 113,499, and that gives us the EBITDA of 122,501. And so um, the reason I do it this way is I want, and there's notes here on how to do it. And so in this case, it explains how you would put this figure in. And so it's not just the normal um, salary for that position, it's also any payroll taxes or expenses or deductions from the company side that have to be done. So, what, what does it cost the company? to be able to pay that person who is going to be the, the manager of the business. And a lot of the, the cases for you guys, it's going to be, uh, you know, the new owner is going to be that manager, but we want to break out, um, you know, what money comes to you for doing the job day to day of running the business versus what money comes to you for being an investor in buying this business opportunity. When we're looking at multiple years, we often want to do some kind of weighted average calculation. And this can vary depending upon whether sales are increasing or decreasing. So in this business, we have increasing sales every year and we have an SDE that is increasing as well. And so, you know, what would typically happen is you do a weighted average over the last couple of years. So in this example, I'm putting a 60% weighting on the most recent year. 30% on the year before and 10% on the year before that. And so now for the purpose of examining this opportunity, I'm going to be using these weighted average figures. And then we have, you know, relative uh, or sorry, comparative performance over time. So we have um, not just the numbers, but I also have the COGS, the gross profit expenses, SDE and EBITDA as percentages of revenue. And this can be an important quick tool because it helps to see um, if you have benchmarking data, what the performance of the business has been over several periods. So if I'm looking at a lot of auto repair businesses and I know on average what they typically should be paying for cost of goods sold 
you know, labor and parts, et cetera, then I can look for problems. So in this case, my cost of goods sold goes from 44 to 49 to 48 and then up to 51. So we, we have a climbing cost of goods sold in this business. So this is going to be helpful because when we get the, uh, another meeting with the seller, we can start asking, you know, what is your pricing strategy? How do you target your markup or margin? Um, we want to know what the industry benchmarks are and we want to know maybe what is happening in the business. Are they just not paying attention? Are they not increasing prices? Are the prices of parts going up, but they're not adjusting that for their customers, right? These are all things you want to know in order to explain why the performance has been how it is, but also to um, to uncover opportunities. You know, what are the things that we could change in this business to make it better? And then I've got a graphically represented here as well. We'll zoom out here a little bit. But um, I like graphs because with graphs, you can very quickly see, like we can see that the sales are going up. Uh, and then over here with the... Um, with the blue cost of goods sold, we can see it's going up as well. And so we can graphically see very quickly what's happening in the business. So in your tool, whether you build one or you're using one that you've downloaded, I think that clarity in the normalization process is one of the key things. And from what I've experienced in working with buyers, as you go through the process of examining the information as it comes out, you're going to want to keep going back to this because you may make adjustments to these normalizations. Next up, um, you know, one of the things that I've talked about a lot is uh, capital expenditures. So when we're looking at seller's discretionary earnings or EBITDA, EBITDA literally stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Depreciation and amortization is how we recognize the wearing out or the using up of capital equipment. And the money that goes to buy capital equipment is referred to as capital expenditures or CapEx for short. And so if we're looking at a cash flow figure that doesn't take into account capital equipment, but we're looking at a business that needs to buy machinery and tools, et cetera, then obviously the cash flow, that EBITDA is not available to go in our pocket. We already know that we're going to have to pay taxes. We know that we're going to have to pay interest on our loans, et cetera. And so we need to know what the capital expenditures are going to be. So in my tool, what I do is I, is I get people to put in a, a fair market value of the machinery and equipment, which may come to you from the SIM, or it may just be an estimate on the part of the seller. As you move through and have a deal and you get into due diligence, you're probably going to want to update this maybe with an appraisal value, right? Uh, and then I put in here an estimated lifespan. What on average extra amount would you have to spend to buy the equipment new? So this 40% here means that if I was going to go buy that $100,000 worth of equipment new today, it would cost me $140,000. And with those two numbers, we can create an annual CapEx budget. Now, what this budget is, is it's basically a recognition of the fact that every year you're going to have to either spend money or put money aside, or you're going to have to lease new equipment. And those leases are going to take part of your cash, which could form part of this budget. How you spend the CapEx, there's many different ways you can spend the CapEx. But what I am trying to do with this is get people to realize what that is going to be and how it's going to affect their cash flow. In the first year you buy a business, you may be able to defer replacement of equipment. You know, you may be able to put it off. But if you're borrowing money over seven or 10 years, you can't defer capital expenditures for seven or 10 years. Um, 
And so if you choose to ignore the CapEx in the short term, you know, that I think should be an informed decision. You should know what you're doing, right? At the same time as we're doing this, I'm also looking at what kind of senior secured debt the business may be able to bear. Uh, and sometimes, you know, like in Canada, under certain government guaranteed loan programs, you can actually even do uh, leasehold improvements can be part of the security. In most places, you can't. Uh, and it asks you what percentage of these things can be financed. That's how it calculates the senior secured uh, lending amounts. So that's CapEx. You want to have some kind of tool to estimate that. Uh, and then there's working capital, which is probably one of the most ignored or forgotten items that I ever come across. Um, a lot of the times, if you're doing an asset purchase, the operating capital won't be included. And so if the operating capital isn't included, in addition to the money you pay the seller for the business, you often have to put in operating capital in order to make the business work. And so how much operating capital do you have to put in or are you going to be able to borrow some of it or are there facilities within the business that will help to generate the operating capital? Um, you need to know. So in this case, we have a section on inventory, a section on current assets like receivables. Um, I like to figure out what the peak annual receivables might be if there's any seasonality in the business. And then I use the estimate of how long it takes to collect. So that's the day sales outstanding. Um, and then I compare that with the sales of the business to get an implied level of accounts receivable. And often there's a difference between the two. Um, and then what else do we have to come up with? Prepaid expenses. Is there any amount of work in progress if this is construction or manufacturing or something like that? Um, I then put in a modifier here, just like extra cash to make you feel comfortable. And it, it, then tells us the total amount of working capital that is required in the business based on these calculations. So where are you going to get the working capital? Well, sometimes you can have receivables included in the purchase. Sometimes you can have prepaid expenses included in the asking price, like the deposit on the lease, maybe, you know, it depends what you negotiate. Um, if you're buying shares, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes you can have cash left behind in a bank account. And there's also the average level of accounts payable. So as you wait to get paid by your new customers, um, your suppliers are going to be giving you credit, for example. And so in this example case here, you can see there's a working capital gap. This is the difference between the working capital required and the internal sources. And so then the question is, how do you finance that? <clears throat> Where is the money going to come from? And so... Um, you know, there's revolving inventory and receivables lines of credit, there's credit cards, et cetera. And people put in this information. And then in, in my tool anyway, I have a max peak interest expense, which just assumes all credit facilities are maxed out over the course of the year. And you put in the interest rates. And then there's the implied average interest expense, which is based upon the average level of working capital needed in the business. And then what I've put here is the ability for you to weight them. So if we know that seasonally there is an increase in payables or sorry, receivables from 103 up to 200,000, it means during part of the year, we're going to have a higher interest expense than the average level. And so, you know, it does the math for me, but I can override it. So if I want to be more conservative, for example, I could put hundred percent on the maximum interest and it'll max it out for me. Um, but I don't want to do that. So that's working capital. And like I said, often ignored things. So people will base 
all of their purchase decision based on the idea of rate of return and you know the profitability, et cetera, of making an investment in the business. And they'll base it all on purchase price, but they'll ignore the real investment that they may have to make in contributing extra cash or the interest expense of a line of credit required to provide the working capital. And you don't want to do that because if you're in a you know situation where you're paying top dollar for a good business and there's not much wiggle room, well, guess what? If you forget the operating capital components of those expenses, then you've just given up all, any wiggle room that might exist or put yourself into a negative situation. Um, the next one is do the numbers work? So um, in this tool that I built, uh, which again is part of Business Buyer Advantage, um, I have this, you know, basically you start at the top and you put in a price. Is it the asking price or is it the price you're going to offer? Well, you start with a number. Um, and then I like to be able to see variations on what, um, what that price is going to do for me. So you can see here that I've got these um, five additional scenarios. So it's based on SDE. And so I can also have the variations change based on revenue. And you can see the revenue, um, or sorry, the, that would be the price. But you have the EBITDA, and then you also have the EBIT, et cetera, uh, changing over the course of time. I'm going to leave this on SDE. And so what it does is it lowers the implied multiple. And so down here, um, or, or rather, the, the revenue shows you what the, at, what the offer price is as a percentage of the business's revenue. And then you can see here, we go down by 0.01 for each um, variation. And for the SDE, it goes down by um, 0.05 for each variation. So it's a quick way of seeing, like if my deal doesn't quite work the way I have it in the A column, you know, I can quickly look over and see how it works in these other variations. Um, I've got two different methodologies for financing built into my template. So I've got one, which is, I called offer composition. I put SBA in brackets because it's the way people talk about SBA financing all the time. So in this one, we're talking about percentages of that purchase price. So in this example, 20% would be the buyer equity, the bank at 65, the seller note at 15. And then the template does the math here. Um, and that this just tells you, yes, it adds up to hundred. the other way to do it is what we call conventional financing, where I'm going to actually put in a number like my senior secured bank financing is going to be 89,000. And that was based on the, the analysis of the assets. I put in here a number for my buyer equity, and then it calculates the seller note based on, um, you know, just the differences there, or I can put in another loan. So if I, if I said, I'm also going to go borrow a hundred thousand dollars on a, my home equity line of credit, for example, I can just put that in there as well. And so then you have to choose. So in my template, you can choose which methodology you want to do. Uh, and then it gives us the scenarios. So um, our money in this scenario with, uh, you know, $400,000 purchase price, 20% buyer equity, that means that we're putting in 80. So it's right there. Um, let me let me zoom in a little bit more here. So make it clearer on the YouTube screen. Uh, and then it calculates the bank loan, what the seller note would be, the total offer to the seller and then here's your cash for working capital. Well, this came from the previous tab where the mathematically it was calculated that we were going to have to put in $5,000 of our own money for the working capital. So our total investment is 405. 
400 going to the seller, the other 5,000 going into the business. So our equity is actually 85,000 in this scenario. And this is what I mean when, when I say people forget to include those working capital needs when they're looking at their own return on investment or their own uh, investment in the business. And so then we have the debt service numbers. So, sorry, keep, uh, keep moving it. So the bank loan, I put 10% interest over six years. It calculates our payments and also our interest. Why, why the two? Well, you want to know what the payments are because you want to figure out the cash uh, flow scenario, but you also need to know the interest because interest is an expense for tax purposes. And if we want to know what the actual money is going to be at the end of this day, we need to figure out our tax bill, which remember EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. I often have people that will just ignore taxes, right? They'll think, well, I'll do a bunch of accelerated depreciation. I won't have to pay taxes. Well, maybe that'll last a year or two, but it's not going to last 10, right? So then this is how people dig holes for themselves. So we put in here the bank loan service, the amortization. It's going to calculate the payment, the interest. Um, you know, we've got room here for the other loan. We have room here for the seller note. In this case, I have 5% over three years. And again, it calculates the payments and the interest. We then have our seller's discretionary earnings, and this is from the normalization tab. So this is our weighted average. And then we have the fair market value of a manager. Um, in my tab, this is pink because um, sometimes people want to overwrite it. Like when people are playing with the deal, they're like, oh, well, you know, do I really need 110,000, you know, uh, plus, you know, the company's other uh, deductions are gonna have to pay for me. Maybe I can get by with 80. So they'll type in 80,000. And then the, the model will change to 80 and then they'll see the difference that that will make. I've got this reset button. Oh, and so I'll just go on there. Analysis. So what was that? 103, 500, let's say. Okay. So normally that resets it, but obviously I've got a bug here. Um, and so SDE minus the fair market value of the owner manager gives us a normalized EBITDA of 169. And then we have our total acquisition debt service. So this is the interest and principal going to the two lenders, the bank and the seller. And it shows us our debt service coverage ratio as a function of EBITDA. And then uh, it lights up in green because it's saying to us, you know, it's greater than two, which is sort of the rule of thumb that I like to see. I don't want to see you commit more than 50% of your EBITDA to debt service. Um, and then we have our CapEx estimate. And then after we take out CapEx, that gives us our normalized EBIT. Um, and then we can look at our actual interest cost and our working capital interest. Again, one of the things people often forget. And then I'll put in a tax rate here. I put 22%. Um, and our depreciation estimate for tax purposes, it uses the CapEx budget. And I, I highlight here in the notes that often this will not be the case. So you can either calculate a more precise forecast for your depreciation for tax purposes, and you can just put it in there and it'll, it'll populate across. Um, and then that then allows you to estimate the taxes. And the taxes are important because you got to pay them, right? So in this scenario, we can see that the free cash flow here is uh, 29,308. If our total equity was 85,000, it's telling us that it's going to take 2.9 years to recoup our equity. And this is a re implied return on equity of 34.5%. Uh, 
on a business acquisition investment, which will give us a yield of 7.2%. And so that, you know, basically runs the numbers on this deal. And we can see that the deal works. And in, in, in my template here, I'm going to zoom back out here. In my template, as people are working on these different calculations, what can happen is they might say, hey, you know, this one here really works for me, this scenario D. So what I do is I have this little tool where they can click snapshot and it will just populate these uh, bits of data on the side here. You can name it, you know, uh, I'm going to put uh, offer one. This is the first offer I'm going to make kind of thing. So what's next then? Well, you know, as we're aware over the course of the last year, interest rates have gone up like crazy. So you're doing all this work under certain assumptions. In this case, the assumption was that the bank loan was at 10%. Well, what can happen to change that? Well, when I was when I was building this particular tool, I was showing it to some of the people in my group coaching program. And one of the, the people suggested, hey, um, uh, I think it was Karen suggested that uh, maybe you should uh, do something so that people can see what the effect of changing interest rates might be. So I created this rate stress tab. And what it does is it simply looks at the changes. You can put in the increments up here, how much you want it to change the interest rate. So if I put 0.5, uh, sorry, 0.05, like 0.05, yeah. So half a percentage point. So you can see here that under the base scenario, this would be the the, the A scenario on the, on the tab we were just looking at. I'm going to zoom in here and make it a little bit bigger. Um, so under the A scenario, it's based on 10%. Well, now we can see what happens to our deal if interest rates go to 10.5, 11, 11.5, 12, 12.5. And we can see here that the free cash flow changes from 29,308 and goes down to 26,675. So it's not that big a deal. If I then change it to 1% increments, now we can see what happens if the interest rate goes up to 15%. And, and really, it's not that huge an impact. And this is only looking at the bank loan. But um, so, so these are the, the most common features that I would see um, sort of lacking in a lot of people's tools that I've seen over the course of time. And so I built them into this tool that I share with students in Business Buyer Advantage. Some of the other things that I've seen people do over the course of time is if you are looking specifically at one industry, is people will build an analysis tool that will start to incorporate some industry data or statistics or benchmarking points into their tool. So for example, if you're always looking at, let's say you're always looking at auto repair businesses, you could actually build into your tool here are the the benchmarks for cost of goods sold and and uh, you know uh, facilities expense or occup occupancy costs or uh, direct labor etc. Uh, so that as you're putting in the information, you're also undertaking a benchmarking exercise at the same time. That would be very useful. Um, and for those of you who are looking at all of this, going, oh my god, you know, I don't. I don't understand like all this stuff. This seems very complicated. I would say that um, it just takes practice and time. Like uh, you want whatever tool you choose to use, you want to learn how to use it inside and out. You want to know where every single 
you know, bit of data is coming from and how it's calculated so that you're familiar. And, and this is why, for example, with cash flow forecasts, I built, a, you know, I'm going to share a banner. I built a cash, the cash flow forecast and business plan writing program a couple of years ago. And one of the reasons why I start that program from a blank spreadsheet is because um, I've just seen too many people download templates off the internet and not understand how the math was done. And they'll get put a bunch of information in and they'll they'll look at it and they'll like the outcome, yet there's problems with it that they don't even know are there. And so if you go to bizplanschool.com, I teach you how to build a cash flow forecast for a business from scratch, from a blank sheet, and really model the spreadsheet after the business and the business model of the company that you're looking at. And what you know, even though I've got this analysis template inside Business Buyer Advantage. Um, it's a great tool for quickly being able to look and see what makes sense as far as an offer. But I don't think you should close on a deal without actually completing a cash flow forecast throughout the due diligence process. Because while a tool like this might be able to show you, you know, here's an offer that makes sense, um, if the seller agrees and then you have a deal and then you move through due diligence, you want to be able to do things like take the time and actually map out what your capital invest your capital expenditures may actually be, right? If there's just a couple of big pieces of equipment in the business, you might say, well, you know, I could get by with $10,000 a year of CapEx on smaller stuff. And then in year three, I'm going to buy this new piece of equipment, the big thing, but I'm going to lease it. So my actual cash outflow is only going to be these lease payments for six months that year. And then, you know, that will then become part of my uh, cash demands moving forward. And then in year five, I'm going to have this other big piece of equipment that I'm going to acquire. And so you can make much more accurate calculations in your cash flow forecast. And, and maybe, you know, the cash flow is even better than what your initial analysis tool predicted. But I don't think it's worth the effort to go through all of that exercise and all of that planning if you don't have a deal, right? You, you want to be able to get something together quickly enough that lets you know that you can kind of have a meeting of the minds between the buyer and seller to, to get that deal down. And then you go working on the, the fine minutiae of your, of your cash flow forecast to make sure that everything's going to work out the way uh, you're hoping. Anyway, I hope that helps. Um, if anyone wants the tool, it's it's for the people that have signed up for Business Buyer Advantage. Go over to businessbuyeradvantage.com to learn more about that. Um, and um, I hope that helps. If there's if there's anyone out there who has some other feature or thing that they've put into their analysis tool that you think that I've forgotten in this one uh, or that I haven't mentioned here today, uh, please put it down in the comments uh, below. Um, you know, this is strictly quantitative. There's a whole qualitative aspect to buying a business that we didn't even touch on here today. You know, things about looking at the staff, looking at the skills stacks of the, you know, seller and, you know, important employees and all that kind of stuff, uh, which obviously have to be taken into account as well. Uh, it just doesn't take into account customer concentration or what that would mean for you or how you might change the deal structure to, to reflect that. But, um, I mean, that's the stuff that we learn about and discuss in Business Buyer Advantage, both in the online training and in the group coaching program. And so with that, I'll say thank you very much for joining me today. Um, and um, we'll say see you later. Bye. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? 
easy, go over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, and more. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go to Mark Willis at Lake Growth Financial, today's video sponsor. Mark helps people better manage their personal and business finances through the bank on yourself insurance strategy. This is something I've done personally and I've seen others use it successfully for years. Go to newbankingsolution.com to find all the interviews I've done with Mark and learn more about the advantages of these programs. While there, sign up for a free consultation to learn what this solution might look like for you.